0: So, broadly speaking, I do think most difficulties of attaining prosperity are about the fact that long-run planning and long-run economic growth generally requires some kind of immediate cost-bearing by somebody, right? And we all do that if we borrow money to go to university. We're making an investment that's costly to us now and will pay off a long time in the future. Many investments have that quality, but political systems are not well-structured to support that kind of time-based decision-making.
1: And now, the good fight with Yasha Monk. In the last days, Emmanuel Macron, the president of France, has made headlines by suggesting that Europe should be less closely aligned with the United States and that in particular on Taiwan, Europe should not follow what Macron implied was America's hawkish stance. In the debate that followed on these remarks, I think that people have run two importantly distinct things together, as indeed did Macron himself in his remarks. The first point is that Europe does indeed have good reason to increase its strategic autonomy. It is true that the United States is in some ways increasingly inward-looking, That we averted a major catastrophe during the presence of Donald Trump quite narrowly, and that is entirely imaginable that Donald Trump or another isolationist might be back in power in 2024 or 2028 or 2032, and that Europe therefore finally needs to build the capacity to protect its values and to stand up to its interests independently in the hopes of a continued close partnership with the United States, in the awareness that there may come a moment in which Europe has to be able, as best it can, to stand up for some of these values itself. But what Macron is suggesting is actually an incredibly unambitious, incredibly depressing vision of what that kind of strategic autonomy would look like, rather than envisaging a Europe that is actually able to stand up for its own values and interests. He imagines a Europe that simply decouples from the United States in order to try and appease any power that is important. His vision of strategic autonomy is not one of genuine autonomy in which Europeans can stand up for what they think is important. It is a form of vassalship, not to the United States, but to China. And so I am perhaps in a strange position in this debate. I think it is good and right for Europeans to think seriously about how they can become less dependent on the United States, how they can become more autonomous in their ability to preserve their democratic institutions and their fundamental values. But that is never going to be achieved by making yourself deeply dependent on a stable authoritarian regime. Like that which is ruling in Beijing, rather than a raucous and deeply flawed democratic country, as is the United States. The problem with Macron's remarks is not that he is a Europeanist, it's not even that he, in some ways, is trying to be Gaullist, it is that it is a curious mixture of being overly ambitious in terms of Europe's ability to stand up for its own interests, and underly ambitious in what it would mean for Europe to actually stand up for its interests. My guest this week is Ben Ensel. Ben is the professor of comparative democratic institutions at Oxford University, And he is, among others, the author of a very pithily named book called Why Politics Fails. It is an attempt to think through five huge topics about politics through democracy, equality, solidarity, security, prosperity, from the perspective in certain ways of rational choice, which is to say, why is it that we all want those things? And yet so many countries have trouble achieving them. I thought this was a really interesting conversation in terms of how to think about politics, but also in terms of thinking through each of those five topics. Dan Ansel, welcome to the podcast.
0: Thank you for having me here, Yasha.
1: So your book that is just out is called Why Politics Fails. One of the standard answers that a lot of people would probably give to that is that the problem is that politicians fail, that politicians are self-serving, evil, conniving, out of touch. You think that that's the wrong answer. Before we get into what your answer is, why is that the wrong answer? It seems like a pretty plausible answer.
0: Yeah, it is a plausible answer to the extent that our politicians share all, and now I will skip to what my answer is, if you don't mind, they share all of the frailties that we all share. And so you hinted that my answer is somewhat different. And my answer is that Broadly, politics fails because all of us are driven by individual self-interest that means that we find it hard to coalesce towards the kind of collective goals we might want. Our politicians are representatives of us. They face an even sharper set of constraints and incentives to misbehave perhaps than we do, so perhaps they're worse versions of us, that might be right. But ultimately, they disagree, at least in part and often mostly, because we disagree.
1: Okay, so then take us deeper into what your actual answer is. So your basic framework is, look, everybody wants nice things. Everybody wants puppies and everyone's babies and everybody wants common goods and for countries to be affluent and so on. But there's this tragic instinct to serve your individual interests first. And the pursuit of those individual interests then makes it hard for us to achieve those public goods. Give a little bit more detail on that basic mechanism and explain why that really should stand at the center of how we understand the world. Why is that mechanism so much more important than other kinds of things we might use to explain our failure to achieve various collective goods?
0: So the way that I construed in the book is to Yes, to some extent, think the worst of everybody. But uh, but I'm not trying to do that to create a moral message to say that humans are that we're sort of fallen and that we'll all behave poorly in every instance. I think a useful way to think about this is there are all kinds of ways in which we can have harmonious relationships with one another. But those usually only occur when we all agree on outcomes to begin with or when there aren't any interdependencies among us, where if I get something, it makes it harder for you to get that thing. And the moment we end up in a world where we do disagree with one another, and I think we've seen over the last several decades that we all do fundamentally disagree in liberal democracies, and that in part explains our political polarisation, then we exit the world of harmony. And so the argument of the book is it's not helpful to... Imagine a harmonious world and then just wish upon wishes that we can get there, the kind of Tinkerbell effect. But instead, we do have to recognize and adjust for the fact that people will disagree on the one hand. So we have to think about ways in which our democratic institutions can manage that disagreement effectively, but also that people will misbehave, you know, when they're not monitored tyrannically and nobody wants to be monitored tyrannically. And so, you know, we might misstate what we want or we might fail to come through on promises that we make. And the argument of the book is it's helpful to understand why it's hard to get what we want if we assume that those kind of dynamics are pretty pervasive and our politics will work better if rather than pretending those problems don't exist, we try and design institutions that can respond to those incentives.
1: So as you're talking, I'm reminded of one of my favorite liberal theorists, and it's very controversial to call him a liberal theorist, which is Thomas Hobbes. And many people make the same kind of mistake you invoke in interpreting Hobbes, right? He famously thinks that life in the state of nature is nasty, brutish, and short. And a lot of people think that's because he has a very pessimistic account of human nature, that Hobbes, unlike John Locke, just thinks that there's something wrong with humans. But that very much is not what he's trying to say on what I think is the right reading of him. He is saying, no, no, humans are a complicated bundle of things. They have some positive desires and emotions. They obviously also care about the security and they can be afraid and they can be vain, glorious. And the problem is the wrong incentives, right? When you have no outside authority, when you have nobody providing you with security, then your legitimate desire to defend yourself against potential attack is going to look to others like you're about to attack them. And so they're going to arm up or they're going to try and attack you before you have a chance to attack them. And very quickly, you get this absolute disaster of a state of nature. How similar or different is the point that you're making? Is it just that given human nature, human nature is neither good nor bad, but given the sort of mix of desires and emotions we have, we just need to put the right institutions and incentives in place in order to be able to escape those kind of tragic outcomes.
0: Yeah, I mean, you're not the first person to mention Thomas Hobbes to me about this book. You might be one of the people who knows Thomas Hobbes best to mention that to me about the book, because you're right, Hobbes is not an argument about human nature as much as it's an argument about what happens, as you said, in a state of nature. So in the absence of institutions, then there's an absence of a backup. There's an absence of certainty There's an absence of a third-party authority that can enforce anything, and that's a big theme of my book. But that doesn't mean, as you say, it doesn't mean that people are out to get one another. The problem is that people are sophisticated, and so they don't know for sure if other people are out to get them. And the Habesian argument about this is, well, if you don't know if people are out to get you and they're acting in ways that don't completely demonstrate that they're not, then you're best off protecting yourself and maybe even preempting that. In the absence of some kind of authority. So the absence of authority is really important to my book, not just in the the sections on security, which is one of the big five traps I talk about. And yes, that does begin very much with the examples from Thomas Hobbes. But I think it's a more general problem of politics, in that politics is about how we make decisions and how we make deals with one another. In the absence, oftentimes, of any third party who can back us up, so to give you a couple of examples here, voters cannot hold political parties to the promises that they make in manifestos. Now, they can vote them out later on, but they can't enforce it. It's not a contract that you can go to some third party and say, hey, they promised to do this and didn't do that. And similarly, a political party could leave a coalition, and the other parties are just out of luck. They can't enforce that coalition, nor indeed can allies enforce another ally coming to aid them. You know, To give you the most important and extreme example of this, Estonia and Latvia and Lithuania don't know for sure that NATO will back them up. If NATO didn't back them up with the Russian invasion, there wouldn't be anyone else they could call on. So in my view and in the view of the book, politics always operates in that kind of domain, where there's nobody that we can really go to as a last resort, so we are on our own and we have to figure out how the deals we make with one another can be self-reinforcing.
1: So talk me through this a little bit, because as you're saying in Hobbes, you know, the core of the argument is in the state of nature. And, you know, the reason why Hobbes thinks that any state, even a potentially tyrannical one, is better than no state at all, is that life in the absence of the state of some kind of common Leviathan is so terrible. But of course, we do have states. We have pretty effective states. We have, you know, states that are immensely powerful by the standards of any past civilization. Now, you're right but in the international arena, this is a metaphor that scholars of international relations often use, but, and that in fact also originates explicitly in Hobbes, that, you know, states stand to each other as humans stood to each other in the state of nature. And so there's an obvious analogy here. But when you're talking about democratic politics, that is not the case. We have constitutions and rules and, and laws and courts and all kinds of things to set and enforce rules and all of that. Was put in place in part to get out of those problems. So why is it that our modern states with their you know fantastically complicated rules and laws, with their immense power, aren't able to solve the problems that seemingly they were set up to solve?
0: So you're absolutely right to say that the laws and institutions that govern our states are precisely what help us resolve political problems, right? So in their absence, we might be in this Habesian anarchy, you know, not just about protecting ourselves, but also our economic relations with one another, the deals we strike with one another. In the absence of any institutions, we'd be constantly in an anarchic environment where we would find it very, very difficult to trust anyone or make anything happen. Much of the book is about how can we reinforce those norms of trust. So what we have instead to enforce those deals are the institutions that we create. But political systems being what they are, there is no constitution that cannot be altered in some way. And indeed, we can get into difficult questions about what happens when unconstitutional ways of amending constitutions happens and how you stop somebody from doing that. But those constitutions that govern our behavior, they can theoretically be changed. And in certain countries like the United Kingdom, it's not really clear what the constitution is. And so we can often end up with behavior that doesn't appear to meet what we think our constitution might be. But secondly, those institutions that we have often don't fit the current state of events that we're in. And so we often feel frustrated because an institution designed for an earlier time is failing to give us what we want today. Uh, And that's a dance, really, that I talk about in the book that's always going to be a challenge. Getting rid of institutions in a kind of populist bonfire of the institutions creates the dilemma that we now enter a world where nobody can trust what anyone else is going to do anymore. And I think is responsible in part for some of the volatility we see in contemporary politics. But going along with institutions just because they're there can lead us to the situation we have, say, with the US Senate, where in very, very small states with around a million people, we get the same representation as states with tens of millions of people. So now we have a different problem where the shoe doesn't really fit anymore. And ultimately, our political problems sort of swing between, I think, those two poles.
1: So let's talk through some of those traps that you discuss in the book. Perhaps you can briefly list them, and then we can start with the security trap and go through them later.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So the way that the book is constructed is around five... Broad goals that most people can coalesce around, can generally agree on. Now, of course, the devil's in the detail. Many of the challenges of the book come from people disagreeing about what they mean by these ideas. But here's what they are, and these are the big five in the book democracy, equality, solidarity, which means sort of looking after people when they're ill, security, and prosperity. So those are the big five. And then the way I describe this in the book is that, you know, first, talk about what I mean by these and to show that they are indeed popular and things we would want. But then secondly, to argue that our individual self-interest often gets us into a trap that makes it ever harder to achieve those goals. And then finally, in each of the sections of the book, I talk about how we might escape each of those traps. So to give you the example of security that you mentioned, that's a trap where we can't avoid anarchy without risking tyranny, which is precisely the problem. You know, as you noted that Thomas Hobbes is in part solving, but in part creating with Leviathan.
1: So explain to me why it is that in your mind, we haven't solved that security dilemma, right? I mean, when I look at a lot of countries around the world today, Britain, the United States, Germany, and so on, for better or worse, they broadly speaking have solved that dilemma, not for better or worse, in fact, for better, you know, they clearly aren't Anarchical in the way that some countries which suffer from state failure are, and they clearly aren't not tyrannical in the way that you know North Korea or some other extreme autocracy might be. So broadly speaking, these countries, to, to varying extents and with harsher trade offs in some places than others, have sort of solved that. So to what extent do you think these democracies have solved that problem? And what has allowed them to solve that problem to that extent in a way that other countries have not?
0: Yeah, you're absolutely right to point at, you know, I think particularly Western European countries seem to have found the right place within this trade off. And the beginning of that chapter talks a lot about the development of early police forces and early prisons and the other institutions that make up the security state. In their absence, you know, much of the countryside was anarchic in most countries. And certainly with the rise of the first major metropolitan areas uh, during industrialization, there were really deep concerns across most countries about endemic crime and disorder which is why we ended up in part with the development of police forces in the early 19th century. And that's something I did a lot of work in my last book on. So how was this successfully resolved? It was successfully resolved in those countries that made the police force and the citizenry less different from one another. So it created civil police forces where the police were supposed to be drawn from the local population and to govern the local population. And that was the initial idea, for example, behind the London Metropolitan Police Force. And it was very much created in contrast with what were perceived to be the autocratic continental police forces, which were essentially sort of military offshoots, gendarmeries, which would be officers wearing military-like uniforms, carrying weapons around the streets. And we still see some of that, you know, if you see the Italian Carabinieri and so on, you know, that type of more tyrannical looking police force was perhaps a sort of a step too far for some countries. But those countries that did develop these civic police forces, I think, did straddle that balance quite nicely. But with that said, I think even in the United Kingdom, right? let's leave alone sort of police violence and problems related to overstepping of the security state in the United States. Even in the United Kingdom, the London Metropolitan Police Force, that very same police force they spoke about, has in recent years murdered an innocent man suspecting him to be a terrorist after the 7-7 bombings on the London Underground, has had an officer rape and murder a citizen who he picked up walking home during the COVID lockdown, has had a serial rapist arrested, right? So there are still aspects with even the country that seems to have resolved most of these questions about how does one avoid anarchy without having an overbearing police force. We still clearly have a number of police officers who are stepping past that mark even here.
1: It's really interesting to think through these different models of police in various European countries. I, I guess I'm trying to understand how this framework of collective desire for something nice and shiny, which is, you know, security without living in a tyranny, is being upended by these individual incentives here and how that's expressed by the difference between something like the Metropolitan Police, which, as you're saying, is not exactly untroubled at the moment, and something like the Gendarmerie in France or the Carabinieri in Italy. Because it seems to me, certainly in the case of the Carabinieri in Italy, my understanding was always, and I may be wrong about this, that they were actually designed in good part with a kind of game theory framework in mind. Which is to say that one of the great problems, of course, in Italy is corruption, as well as the hold of various mob organizations of the mafia and others. And so when you have a local police force, the incentive is to be bought off by the ruling families, is that they may have these longstanding ties with those families. The brother, the father, the whatever may have a business that is dealing with them. And so it becomes very, very hard to rein in this corruption. So the model becomes that you have this national police force, which is in some ways thought of as quasi a branch of the armed forces. And then you can move them around every three years. And so they're be from Sicily, perhaps, but they'll end up in Milan, or they'll be from Milan, they'll end up in Bari. And they won't have those local ties and allegiances. So they won't have the incentive to go along with the corruption and so on in the same way. Clearly, that hasn't perfectly worked in Italy for any number of reasons. But I guess, isn't the theory that you're putting forward, which is, well, what's special about, you know, historically, the police force in England is that was supposed to be more like the population they govern. Isn't that more of a cultural frame? Is it? It's more about, hey, you know, if you have similar values and you feel a connection to the people you're serving and you feel like you're from the same town, you have a sort of collective spirit of trying to make sure that your town thrives, then you might end up acting in the right ways. That feels more like a cultural frame and something like the logic for having a gendarmerie or having a carbonieri seems in a way more of a how to avoid the typical pitfalls of collective action frame. Yeah, I think the way I would
0: describe this is to say that the British or to some degree the North American set of policy incentives to create the police the way that they did and the ones that operated on Europe, we could call this cultural or not cultural. I think what it does is it suggests that there are different contexts in terms of how concerned people were about anarchy versus tyranny as these two kind of endpoints, right? So if you're England in the 18th, 19th century, you have some concerns about anarchy on the streets of London, and indeed, you know, you have the creation of the sort of earliest detectives, the base street runners, at the end of the 18th century, who you know are there to deal with street crime, and ultimately, we end up with the Metropolitan Police Force emerging by the 1820s. Again, because of concerns about the kind of anarchic—I guess this is pre-Dickensian, but you know, anarchic Victorian streets of London. But with all of that said, and I talk about this quite a bit in the book, the Broader concern of English policymakers at the time was avoiding a standing army-like police force that could be used to constrain citizens like that which existed on the continent. Their concerns about tyranny much dominated their concerns about anarchy. I think the Italian case is probably the opposite. There were deep-rooted concerns about corruption at the local level. There was a new Italian national state that strongly suspected that local areas wouldn't conform to national policy. And so there, the concern was much more about anarchy than it was about tyranny. And, you know, that may have reflected a cultural norm, or it may just have reflected, you know, where are you on the spectrum and in which direction do you need to move?
1: So tell me sort of where the basic driving mechanism is it here today? I mean, if we're trying to think about how to improve public safety in Britain and in the United States, without all of the abuses from policing that we clearly are facing at the moment, what kind of solutions can your frame help point us towards? Or even what kind of logic of an the situation that might not be as clear from op-eds in The New York Times or in you know, The Guardian can we get to by thinking about it from this perspective?
0: So I think what I would advise people to do is to always, when thinking about these security problems, think about the individual incentives of citizens to misbehave on the one hand and to think about the incentives of police officers to act in ways that maximize the interest of each individual officer. Now, what is that? Well, that might just be earning more money. It might be you join the police force because you like exerting authority on people, so it might be overstepping the bounds in that way. It might be corruption, and obviously it depends then on what environment you're in. But the simplest way of avoiding individual incentives, creating bad outcomes, either sort of anarchic behavior among citizens or anarchy within the tyranny, if you like, a police officer not behaving and they're not being controllable and then enacting tyrannical punishments on the population is to observe people in some way and to be able to set up a framework where we can see what both citizens and the police are doing. Now, there's a downside to that that I'll come to in a second. But for anyone who's lived in the UK for a while, as I have, and someone who grew up here and then moved to America in my early 20s and then back again here in my 30s, the biggest difference walking down the street in the UK and the US was the absence of CCTV cameras, closed circuit video cameras, observing people in America as compared to the UK where they've been around since the 1990s. So that kind of observation can sort of stop anarchy among citizens, but we now have that type of observation among security forces, right? So we could put body-worn cameras On police officers, and there's lots of evidence I talk about in the book, that both police officers wearing body-worn cameras and those not wearing body-worn cameras but in forces where other officers are, do tend to moderate their behaviours. They're less likely to draw their weapons, for example. So one could make an argument that observation helps, and we certainly have the technologies to do so. But that leads us to a couple of dilemmas. First off, and as I speak about in the book, George Floyd was murdered on camera, and not just on the cameras of citizens, but in fact on the body-worn cameras of a number of Derek Chauvin's fellow officers there. So the existence of observation alone doesn't prevent bad police behavior, although of course it did in the long run help prosecute Derek Chauvin. And then we have the broader picture, which is how do we all feel about being constantly observed, and is that a different form of tyranny that might mean... The, we ourselves feel that that's not a set of bounds that we're willing to wrap around ourselves any further.
1: To ask a very crass question, if you're advising legislators in the United States, think about public safety while reining in the abuses that police in the United States often perpetrate. Are there any clear lessons to be drawn?
0: There's a useful lesson from what's happened with the London Metropolitan Police Force. Body-worn camera rules differ across American police forces and presumably across American states. So whether one could have federal legislation on this, I don't know. But there have been a lot of struggles with getting the Metropolitan Police to release body-worn camera footage to the public in a timely fashion. And so I suppose what I would say is that there's been a lot of legislative effort to make the police more observable. But that effort can't simply be in buying lots of body-worn cameras and asking police officers to wear them. It also um, you know, requires that video evidence to be released essentially on demand so that officers know that not only are they being observed, but that that observation can make its way through the legal system or even into public life. Now, there are people who are concerned that police officers wearing body-worn cameras all the time and knowing that everything they do is on film and can be watched by the public will slow walk. They will fail to prosecute crimes, they will worry that they are at risk. Right? And that's an understandable concern, but the evidence that I've seen and talk about in the book suggests that there is not yet a kind of de-policing effect of wearing those types of cameras. So I guess my current view of this is rather than defunding the police, observing the police would be the best way of ensuring public safety and that the police are indeed out there, but removing or reducing the possibility
1: of egregious police violence. So, security is perhaps the most fundamental of your dilemmas. I'm going to go through the dilemmas in my intuitive ordering from most fundamental to less fundamental. I'm not sure if that exactly makes sense and not the order in which you present them. But I think perhaps second after security might come democracy. So, what is the nature of a collective action dilemma when we're talking about democracy?
0: You know, it's interesting that you pick security first and then democracy, because I toyed about this particular ordering within the book about which is a sort of more fundamental human concern. Ultimately, democracy is about how we make decisions and how difficult it is to make decisions. And so, in a way, many of the problems later on and our inability to achieve, say, our security goals might themselves be reduced to our inability to actually make collective decisions at all. So why can't we make collective decisions? So the democracy trap, as I set it up, boils down the trap to the fact that there isn't a clear thing such as the will of the people. So that there's no way for us to know what society truly wants because that doesn't make a great deal of sense unless everybody literally agrees on everything. Instead, we have to have some rules and procedures to aggregate people's differences and come to some kind of collective answer. And so the way I talk about democracy is to contrast a situation where you have pervasive chaos, where you can't make any decisions at all. And this is what political scientists have studied something called social choice theory will talk a great deal about the fact that there is no unimpeachable way of taking lots and lots of individual preferences over things and turning them into something that collectively makes sense. And that can indeed happen under certain conditions. I talk a lot about the votes around Brexit in the UK and the difficulty that the ruling party had uh, back in all, the whole period between 2016 and the vote in 2019 in coming to any kind of agreement at all. But the alternative that we can get into sometimes when we resolve chaos is just polarization, which I think is more symptomatic of the American experience over the last 20 years where decisions can get made. But they're decisions where one half of the population is set against the other half of the population with great venom and discontent.
1: So explain the nature of American polarization to me, because one of the striking things about it is that in public opinion polls, polarization is actually not that extreme on policy issues. Right? When you ask people about how they feel about the police, when you ask people about abortion, when you ask people about even economic policy, when you ask people about their view of history, about a whole range of issues, they come up with what to me seem pretty reasonable positions, which a majority of people agree with and which are not particularly extreme. But on most of these issues, the two main political parties take stances that both are quite far divorced from where the bulk of the market population lies and are extremely far away from each other. So how do we get to that outcome?
0: We get there in a few ways. So, you know, as you say, Americans tend to agree on the specifics, but they often disagree on more general issues, more general sort of philosophical issues, which one might align with the preferences of the political parties themselves, which I'll come to in a second. But we see that in the United Kingdom as well. So there are really large differences, for example, in the UK across parties on questions about the death penalty or about whether children don't respect their elders enough. So, sort of big picture social issues. But if you ask people about government spending on education or even the general tax level, you find, find a lot more agreement on these sort of specific policy questions. So, I don't think that American experience is unique. And I think the polarization between parties in part reflects maybe some of these more fundamental preferences that people have or claim to have but I think it does in the American and increasingly the British context also come from the way in which the leaders of those parties are increasingly elected through primary elections whereas if the American public as a whole has quite moderate preferences that's not always true among those people who not only are eligible to turn out to vote in a primary but actually go and do so who will tend to have more extreme preferences. It's also, of course, the case that moderate congressional representatives or senators tend to win election in swing states and therefore are less likely to remain in office for longer periods of time because those are swing states where a Republican is replaced by a Democrat and by a Republican. And the same is true in the United Kingdom, again, where there are safe seats that conservatives always win and that Labor MPs always win. And so the more moderate members of parliament who represent those more moderate constituencies are going to be in power less. So, in part, Our political systems are structured to empower the extremists, both among voters and among politicians. And then I suppose the final trick is, well, why is it that people seem to agree on the specifics but not on the general? Well, I think here parties have been increasingly good at taking their philosophies, which to some degree bubble up on the extremes, And guiding voters who align with that party to think in that way. In other words, the parties are leading the voters, I think, with sort of broad philosophical issues about fairness or about the role of government, even if on specifics people find that they might agree on these bigger kind of role of government questions, they often find themselves in disagreement, which I think is really quite elite driven in both countries.
1: I agree with you. And I think the point you're making about the nature of parliamentary representation is also really important that moderates tend to come from swing districts and therefore tend to sometimes lose elections and especially in a system that's as seniority-based as for example the United States Senate, but actually then gives greater power to people who tend to be more ideologically extreme. It's sort of like the flip side of a primary problem that people talk about a little bit less. So here it seems like we are running into a combination of different dilemmas you've talked about. On the one hand, the dilemma that we need stable expectations in a political system. And so we need constitutional rules that are hard to amend. But on the other hand, that means that it's pretty hard to change those kinds of institutional setups. And if we do, we raise all kinds of fears and all kinds of potential problems down the line. And so therefore, it's hard to adapt these institutions. But talk me through what you think a better constitutional setup would be? Are there institutional reforms that would help the political parties represent where the centre of public opinion seems to lie more effectively?
0: So there are revolutionary changes that you could make, which would almost literally involve a revolution, but I think are still worth discussing. Both Britain and America have electoral systems that privilege two parties. Those parties can be more easily captured by extremes, potentially. That's not always the case, right? You can have highly successful moderate leaders who are able to push the party in that direction. But certainly there is a kind of inbuilt centrifugal force, right, that pushes people out to the extremes. So how could you avoid that in electoral system design? Well, I'm not fully sold on proportional representation, not least because I think Weimar Germany, the French Fourth Republic, contemporary Israel, none of these are great examples for proportional representation and multi-party systems with lots of political parties, right? So there are weaknesses to that. But I think a system where people's votes translate into seats for parties in a much clearer fashion. Than is true in the United Kingdom or the United States, would have a number of advantages in stabilizing politics. Essentially, PR systems, while lots of new parties can emerge and die in those systems, know that's not necessarily a bad thing either, because it means that new ideas can get represented. It's also the case that coalitions tend to be larger than just 50%. I mean, they don't have to be, and it certainly can be like that. But oftentimes, you'll see that there are more moderate parties that are constantly in government, And I talk in the book, even when you have a party more to the extreme, governing in lots of PR coalitions, it can often end up governing with a whole range of other countries. So Mark Rutte has been the Prime Minister of the Netherlands for a decade now, and he's had four separate coalitions in which almost every major party in the Netherlands have been represented at some point. And so what that does mean is that there is more stability in policymaking to the extent that there is the same prime minister in charge and many of the same figures, but also everybody gets a turn at some point. So there is a representative turn-taking that is less slash and burn than happens in countries like the United Kingdom, where except for this 2010-2015 period, it's either the Conservatives or the Labour Party, and there's a burning the bridges tendency where you get rid of all the reforms that the previous party did and introduce yours as long as you can stay in government until you, you lose out. I do think that proportional representation systems tend to have the stability of a coalition that's much broader across the public, and that almost always privileges groups somewhere in the middle of the distribution of political preferences. Now, that might be stultifying in lots of ways, and it can be unstable too, as in Weimar, but often, as we see, I think, in the Northern European countries, it has been really quite stable, and that's been good for things like investment. It's been good, I think ultimately for lower inequality in those countries. It's been good for consistent funding of their public spending projects and consistent taxation to pay for that spending.
1: It sounds like you're going a little bit back and forth on that. Perhaps you was just putting a proviso first, but you are ultimately saying proportional representation would be more effective in those countries. So what about some of the main problems? with? It? I mean, you mentioned one, which is there's lots of examples of countries where proportional representation goes badly wrong. You mentioned the French Fourth Republic, Germany, of course, Israel today, Italy for a lot of the post-war period. There's a couple of other problems which you've sort of alluded to, but I just want to spell them out. One of them is that it's incredibly difficult to bring about change in some systems of proportional representation. So a country like the Netherlands, you might vote for a left wing party, or you might vote for a more robustly right wing party, but then lo and behold, they end up going to a coalition with Rutte. And so if your main goal is this guy's been prime minister for too long, he's been in power for over ten years, I just want to get rid of him, it's really hard to actually bring that outcome about. And that feels like it could be destabilizing, it could drive people to deep cynicism about politics and so on. And the related problem is of course that you know you have much greater choice in the political stream you support, right? I mean, in the United States, you can vote for the Democrat, you can vote for Republican, or you can waste your vote. And if you dislike both the Democratic and Republican Party, that means, you know, you just have to hold your nose and vote for whoever you prefer or not vote at all, right? It's not a coincidence that in the United States, so many people don't vote. It's in part because, you know, the number of offerings is very low. And so a lot of people aren't represented. If you had five or six viable political parties, you'd probably have more people show up to cast the vote. But on the other hand, in a system of proportional representation, you know, you vote for the, you know, Green Party thinking that they're going to go into a left-wing coalition because they're left-of-center party, but parliamentary logic and math demands that they enter a different kind of coalition, it's accounted, and suddenly the vote that you as a left-winger proudly gave to a left-leaning party is helping to elect a, you know, conservative Christian Democrat prime minister. So one thing I've always been struck by is that when I'm speaking in countries that have some system of first possible posts, some a version of a majoritarian system that's very prevalent in Britain and the United States, I often get questions about, well, shouldn't we have PR? Wouldn't that make things a lot better? But when I go to countries that have systems of proportional representation, they often ask me, well, isn't the problem our system of proportional representation? Shouldn't we be going towards a more majoritarian system? So taking these points on board, and you're obviously well aware of all of them, why do you think that we should nevertheless give the edge to a PR system or PR-like system?
0: As a political scientist, as a car-carrying political scientist, of course, I agree with all of those critiques. And I am very struck by the fact that when you speak to people in proportional representation (laughs) systems, they complain about how those operate. I think there is a danger that for all of us that the grass is always greener on the other side. And PR systems, I think, are more likely to create chaos and indecision. Things not happening, and I draw, for example, on the case of Belgium, where for over a calendar year no government was actually formed after an election. So clearly, that feels suboptimal. Although, of course, Belgium ticked on regardless during that period of time, right? But it certainly doesn't feel accountable in any way.
1: There's some great theory which I've never researched out, and which I'm sure is, I mean, almost certainly wrong, but it's very entertaining. That after the 2008 financial crisis, one of the problems in a lot of Europe was governments pulling back on spending too much and that deepening recession. And one exception apparently was Belgium because they didn't have a government so they couldn't pull back spending and they ended up doing a lot better.
0: Well, and you know to point to your earlier example, you know you mentioned the post-war era in Italy where there was roughly a prime minister a year, but of course that's the period in which the, the Italian economy suddenly zooms to you know the front of the line in developed country wealth you know, up through the 1980s. So in some ways, it's the worst political time, for Italy, but economically, it's fabulous for the country. And, you know, and even the fourth republic in France is a period of growth. It's, sometimes it's hard to separate out these things, right? Very unaccountable, or feels unaccountable, right? Because it's hard to know who to punish. seems unstable, because you have lots of politicians going all the time. And yet it's also associated with a period of declining inequality, and growing prosperity and the development of the welfare state in these countries. So it's hard to know whether the outputs in sort of real world terms are positive, even though the political outputs look terrible and whether that's by design or not. I think proportional representation, it's going to work least well where there are a series of sort of chaotic different preferences that just can't be aggregated easily. And that's where you do get this kind of Belgian situation, which in that case was caused in part by not only economic differences in Belgium, but these very clear differences between the Flemish and French-speaking communities, which were very hard to resolve. Ultimately, Belgium ticked along fine regardless, but clearly what we're seeing in Israel right now, which is coalitions winning with very thin margins in a totally proportional system that's extremely divided, is one where we're ending up with polarization and chaos, right? So the worst of all worlds, and that is possible in a PR system. But I do think we underestimate the costs of electoral accountability, um, we always know in the United Kingdom, for example, how to vote politicians out and who's in charge. Right. So we have a very clear clarity of responsibility. But we have also ended up with a very kind of stop go economic development over the last 50 years, where because the Conservative and Labour Party have such different manifestos for how the country should be governed, we swing back and forth. And I think ultimately that has been tough for investment and it has been tough for stable, credible policymaking. And so it's not always going to be the case that accountability has these downsides. But the whole book is about trade-offs, and these trade-offs do exist. We might get what we want democratically, but we might lose out because of that in terms of prosperity or in terms of equality.
1: So I'm going to zoom ahead to the third trap, because you were invoking it, which is that of prosperity. So you know, why is it that a country like Italy... Was able to sustain all of that economic growth in the 50s, 60s, 70s and up through the 80s, sort of, and has now had 30 or 40 years of stagnation. Is there a broader story to be told here about why we obviously all want prosperity? And yet some countries like Italy end up getting so mired and stuck in a particular set of structures would make it pretty hard, or why it is in France that the necessary reforms to bring down some of the costs of hiring new employees and sustaining the welfare state, you know, are so difficult to do that they lead to these, you know, giant eruptions in the streets.
0: So broadly speaking, I do think most difficulties of attaining prosperity are about The fact that long-run planning and long-run economic growth generally requires some kind of immediate cost-bearing by somebody, right? And we all do that if we borrow money to go to university. We're making an investment that's costly to us now and will pay off a long time in the future. Many investments have that quality, but political systems are not well-structured to support that kind of time-based decision-making. I talk about the development of social security in the United States. Initially, Roosevelt had a massive majority in both houses and the presidency by a massive margin in the late 30s, wanted to introduce the costs of Social Security immediately, that is the payments on paychecks, but had the first benefits come several years later, about eight years later. But after losing a congressional election in 1938, they just reversed it completely and actually... The benefits will come at the same time as the costs. We're unable to separate out the two. And I think that's a much more general problem that we can see in examples from the biggest of all in terms of climate change and taking costs now to get to net zero when we know the payoff may not even happen while we're alive, and it's certainly years into the future. But it also exists with all kinds of development choices. Putting in hard yards for politicians, if you know that you're not guaranteed to be in office three or four years later, it's very difficult. Another example I like it was a lovely policy idea, to some extent, was the baby bonds that Tony Blair introduced in the new Labour government in the early 2000s. And, and that was a small amount of money, about £1,000 that everybody would get at birth and be able to access at 18. Now, the problem is very few political parties are still in power 18 years later. So they only came in last year, by which time not only had Blair been replaced by Brown, but in fact, we'd had four separate conservative prime ministers by that point. Right? So that's a sort of extreme example of a policy that might well be beneficial. right? It would be useful for everybody to have these opportunities when they enter adulthood, but where the political payoffs are just a mile away from the costs that are incurred.
1: Is this just a general problem of democracy, which is to say that not just in the economic realm, but in all kinds of different realms of life, what matters is outcomes 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years down the line. But what matters to a politician is possibly tomorrow's headline. And certainly whenever your period of government is up is at most four and a half, five years away in some political systems like the United States, it might be, you know, every two years for the House of Representatives.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's like being a chief executive worried about quarterly stock reports, right? Like sometimes that's a good thing. It's a good thing for shareholders, but it might be a bad thing for making long-run investments. And certainly there's an argument out there that Germanic or Japanese models of long-run investment were helpful in supporting firms engaged in the types of production of goods that would take five or 10 years of research and design and factory development and training to pay off, which countries like the US and the UK focused on quarterly earnings reports find it harder to do. I think that same principle applies in politics. I do think that there is a big risk though when you start talking about this, which is you give sucker to those people who would say, and that's why you know, countries like China and Singapore have got it right, that they don't have to worry about complaints. And so they can plan for the long run. They're not on the electoral time scale. And I suppose in a world of totally benign dictatorships, one could imagine an argument for that. But of course, people in dictatorships are not in fact constrained to do what's best for the public for the long run. And they have also have immediate incentives to try and stay in power and prevent people from overthrowing them and so on and so forth. So what I do think it suggests might be something to look at with more admiration are those democratic systems that do have a number of veto players that sometimes make it hard to change decisions, right? So, you know, you spoke earlier about there's obviously a negative side to not being able to make reforms, right? You know, and we can see that with the difficulties of establishing universal healthcare in the United States. But there are also benefits of not changing things rapidly in the sense that people can create clear expectations about what's going to happen to them in 10 years time. They can plan more effectively.
1: So draw out the argument about dictatorships. Is it that dictatorships are in fact better at long run planning? But the thing they mostly care about is staying in power and perhaps enriching themselves and all kinds of other things or you know, the irrational aspects that come in from dictatorship. Because, for example, the dictator may start to be in an information bubble and doesn't have to deal with bad pieces of news and so on. Do they just override this advantage or does the advantage not arise in the first place?
0: So, I think that one can make the claim that in a couple of cases, I mean, I think South Korean development is an okay example for this. And and I think aspects of Chinese economic development since the 80s work in this basis, that sometimes it can be beneficial to have a government that plans for the long run and knows it will be in power. I can imagine a set of cases in which that is true. However, all of the other advantages of being a dictatorship almost always outweigh that. So, I don't think it's Completely false to say that there were some advantages for authoritarian countries in some cases in developing in, say, the 70s and 80s. I think there's probably an element of truth to that. But ultimately, they're almost always brought down by the fact that they're unable to pivot to forms of development that aren't simply about kind of large scale manufacturing, large scale resource extraction. It's much, much harder. For an authoritarian government to plan a high-tech service economy than it is to produce goods and dig goods out of the ground. So they've stumbled there. They also are so beset by the incentives of everybody from politicians to citizens to fundamentally misrepresent things in order to avoid getting into trouble that they find it very, very hard to acquire information about what's going on. And so ultimately, there is an advantage they can have that is almost always overridden by these other problems.
1: Talk me through equality. What is the trap of equality? Why is that something that we all desire, but that we individually act to undermine?
0: The way I talk about equality is to counterpose the difficulty of achieving equal rights and freedoms on the one hand, or even equal opportunities with achieving equal outcomes. Now, what I'm drawing on there is a large range of contemporary political theory where everybody agrees in equal treatment in some regard, right? So from the kind of libertarian view of of equal property rights and equal treatment under the law to dispose of that property in any way you want, to a kind of fully egalitarian view that equal outcomes are what's important. And I think it's obvious to most people that it's very hard to achieve both at the same time that to have extremely equal outcomes while letting everybody do what they want and dispose of their property as they want is almost logistically impossible. There's a nice example from the political theorist Jerry Curran that I draw on, where he argues that, look, you could have a world where everybody gets paid exactly the same and everybody can do exactly what they want in the labour market and do what they're best at, as long as everybody is willing to have an egalitarian ethos, he calls it, where everybody's willing to accept exactly the same returns to what they do. Now, then there is no contradiction, but that's a world a long way away from the one in which we live. And so in almost all cases, getting towards equal outcomes is going to lead to some kind of restrictions on rights and vice
1: versa even at a more fundamental level, which I find, you know, it's obvious in the literature that people don't think about enough. There's just very, very basic conflicts between different forms of equality. which was a point made by Amartya Sen and others, right? So either you have real equality or similarity in how much money people take home at the end of the month, or you have equality in how much they're paid per hour. But unless there's a very tyrannical state that forces everybody to work exactly 30 hours a week, you cannot have both, right? So I'm still going to have some people who are much more affluent because they choose to work a lot more, or you're going to have to pay people there differentially for the time they do work. And either way, the society is unequal in some very important respect.
0: And because equal processes almost always lead to people doing divergent things, and to stop those divergent things from producing divergent outcomes generally requires a restriction on those processes. right? And so that trade-off is inevitable. And you can end up in extreme examples, in a kind of Stalinist example where you essentially enslave or exhort everybody to work as hard as they can and give them all the same. You can do that, but it becomes tyrannical. Or you can end up in a world where you wave your hands in the air and say, well, who knows, everyone should do what they want, no restrictions. And then of course you end up with extremely unequal outcomes. Now, in reality, again, those are the extremes of politics failing, and most advanced industrial countries, we live somewhere in the middle, where we're constantly engaged in this trade-off between the two. But we can still end up with some surprising examples. So I draw on the book I wrote with David Samuels, where we argued that equal economic outcomes and equal political rights don't always go together. We argue that actually it's in those countries where economic outcomes were becoming more and more unequal, but the new wealthy group were unrepresented. That's the countries where you've got equal property rights. So sometimes inequality on one dimension can actually produce equality on another. And so, look, equality is complicated. All of us need to decide you know, how much inequality on some domain we're willing to accept for more equality on another.
1: Yeah, I mean, for me, this goes back to a sort of broader question, not about what is the definition of equality, but what is the point of equality. I've thought about this a lot in my PhD thesis, which is quite unrelated to most of the things I did afterwards about notions of personal responsibility and responding to a tradition within philosophy called lack of who I think I just lost a basic point out of sight that, you know, what we really want from equality in a democratic society is in my mind, you know, roughly two things. The first that there's not such extreme inequality that some people are immiserated, that some people have their life prospects just radically curtailed by the extent of misery and poverty they're in. And the second that we can actually be compatriots, that we can be fellow citizens, that we have enough of an equal society that we can encounter each other as social equals even if you, know, you might have a Rolex and I don't, and your house might be much fancier than than mine is. But if we're sitting down in a political context, and a social context, we can sort of look each other into the eye and be equals in that kind of way. And to me, all of those you know, very interesting conceptual debates about equality put us in danger of losing sight of, you know, why is it that ordinary people actually care about equality in the first place? Why is it that historically people have cared about equality? Well, it's because these two things have been violated because some people are so miserable that they have terrible, terrible lives while others are living in splendor. Or there's such a steep social hierarchy that people feel, you know, those people above me, they look down on me, I can't actually talk to them as equals. I think if we accomplish those two forms of equality, to me, it becomes much as consequential if people don't have exactly the same amount of money, all of those kinds of things just take on less importance.
0: The way I often think about this now is that people really don't like extremes of inequality, but that doesn't mean that they are preternaturally driven to want extremes of equality, that the the opposite of it doesn't necessarily hold. I talked about the difficulties of wealth taxation. We had a debate during the 2019-2020 period in which the Democratic presidential primaries were occurring, both Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders wanted a wealth tax at that time. We're having debates in the United Kingdom right now about wealth taxes, and I've run surveys about how people feel about wealth taxation. And despite the fact that wealth is much, much more unequally distributed than even in the United Kingdom and in the US, there's very little demand for taxing it. And I think the reason is that people don't care, it seems, at least from my surveys, about equal wealth per se, but they do care quite strongly about fair treatment. So to the degree that you can emphasize things you know, along the lines that this person got wealthy in some kind of unfair fashion, just out of luck, or you know, by speculating, then yes, you can make people dislike it. But otherwise, people tend to think it's important that they have equal rights to spend the money that they've earned in the way that they want to, including on their children. And so you know, I find, for example, that only 25% or so of the British public think inheritance tax is even fair, right? let alone want it higher. And I think maybe people who have advocated wealth taxes have misunderstood how people think about equality here. People care about being treated equally. No exceptions. The rules apply to all of us on here. And they care less, it seems, about more abstract ideas of the overall aggregate equality of outcomes in society.
1: Your last trap is about solidarity. How, in your mind, is solidarity different from equality, which we've just been talking about? And what is the trap of solidarity and how do we get out of it?
0: Yeah, I mean, so solidarity is how we look after one another. So in some ways, it implies, I suppose, some kind of equalization of welfare, right? If somebody is really poorly off, you're going to make them better off. But it doesn't really require any kind of major narrowing of equality in society it is of course a form of equal treatment. the idea is that we would all like if we fell on hard times to uh, you know have somebody or society in general help us out right so that's what solidarity is. In substantive terms, that means the policies that, that political scientists call the welfare state, so healthcare, education, pensions, unemployment insurance, right? And so all of those things can exist in highly unequal countries like the United States or South Africa, and they can exist in highly equal countries like the Czech Republic. They obviously operate differently in those countries, and they can be designed differently. But I think they follow a common human impulse, which is that even in highly unequal countries, There is a lot of charitable giving or a lot of religious common feeling, right? And I think that's as true about the United States as anywhere. And so thinking about where it becomes harder or easier to provide that solidarity, irrespective of what level of equality you have, is the key aspect. And in particular, I talk about the difficulty that often emerges of solidarity across a diverse group of people who don't always feel a sense of oneness with one another. I think that is something that is heightened by America's racial politics, but it's not a solely American experience. Lots of ethnically or linguistically diverse countries have had difficulty in creating solidaristic social programs that benefit lots of diverse groups who might not always want to look after each other.
1: This is a topic, and I sort of pushed Heather McGee on this when she came on the podcast, on which I feel there's sort of just very odd divergence of political valence in the discussion in Europe and in the United States. I find that sometimes in the United States, it feels pretty virtuous to emphasize, for example, that it was historically been hard to construct public goods and to sustain a welfare state that is as generous as it is in Europe, in part because of that racial politics, because of, you know, a lot of white right voters saying, well, I don't want to vote for those welfare programs because they're mostly going to go to black people and I care less about them. Oddly, I find in Europe, it often feels politically incorrect to make this argument because it seems to imply that we shouldn't have more immigrants because if we have more immigration, it's going to become harder to sustain our welfare state. So how do you read the state of the literature on whether ethnic and linguistic and religious and other forms of diversity Make it harder to sustain that form of solidarity and reform of the welfare state, and what is it that we can do to you know sustain unemployment insurance and health insurance and other things nevertheless.
0: You speak very clearly about that, not least because you're an expert on this topic. If we were having this conversation in the late 1990s or early 2000s, I think the the general consensus in political science and economics at that time was, yes, more diverse countries have smaller welfare states and these things must be related. I think there are increasingly some arguments that, well, you could have a Dutch model where you have a kind of pillarization. So you have diversity in, in the Dutch case, really in religious terms. And there's a famous line about the Dutch education system, which was that if a window broke in the Calvinist school, the Catholic school and the public school would also get new windows, right? You'd find ways of sort of spreading the money around, right? So diversity doesn't have to lead to lower spending firstly that's it's not a mechanical effect but secondly i think there's increasingly strong evidence that whatever differences there are from diversity can be overcome by appeals to some kind of broader and it is indeed often national oneness right so if it's about creating solidarity across a group of people canny political entrepreneurs can reframe that debate. They can reframe it about the nation as a whole. I've drawn some interesting evidence from Prana Singh and her colleagues where they conducted an experiment to see if Hindus in India were willing to contribute to help out Muslim victims of a fire. And they found that you're putting the map of India colored in the Indian flag in their experiment as opposed to leaving it out made Hindus feel much more excited about doing so, right? So in other words, the collective identity of India, and that collective solidarity then overrode the group-based solidarity. I think you can see that to some degree in places like Scotland with this sort of SNP idea of civic nationalism that I think has worked quite well as a unifying political campaign across individual divides in Scotland under Nicola Sturgeon. Um, We'll see how it goes now. So I don't think You know, that diversity means doom. I I do think that welfare chauvinism, which is a sort of techie political science term for wanting public spending only on native-born populations, is popular in Europe. And to give you an example of that, you know, anybody used to be able to come to the UK and get treated by the NHS. Then that was restricted only to legal immigrants and nationals. And then legal immigrants themselves had to pay a fee, right? There's an NHS fee now, right? So those were very politically popular decisions that narrowed the scope of solidarity. So we do have to push back against that. But I think there are ways of doing that. And I think civic nationalism is one potential mechanism.
1: It seems to me that there's another uh, trade-off here, or perhaps you would prefer to use the term trap, which is that, you know, on the one hand, it is understandable that you want to call attention to conflicts, to inequalities in a country that over the last 20 or 10 years, we've become much more likely to frame public discourse around how some groups are faring less well than others, the ways in which to discriminate against and so on. But on the other hand, that, of course, seems to counteract exactly that kind of emphasis on we are all part of the same nation. You should not think of those Muslim victims of a flood as Muslims. You should think of them as Indians. And in that moment, you're much more likely to actually favor relief for them. So how do you combine those things in terms of how the public discourse is framed today in Britain, in the United States, and some other countries? How do you think we're dealing at reconciling those two goals?
0: It's an inherent challenge when you have a kind of assimilationist argument up against the multiculturalist argument, if you will, where the people who are sort of the proponents of the multiculturalist argument are also the people who are generally speaking more proponents of solidarism, right? Because it creates a trap for them In the sense that if they are speaking about differences and people hear that and think, gosh, those people are different, and that reduces solidarity, even as they wish to do it. And it creates potential bad faith arguments from assimilationists who don't really want to spend more on the welfare state. And where they say, well, we only would if you stop highlighting these differences. I think that is very challenging. I do think that most of the change in this will come from the general public blurring existing differences in their minds and simply caring less about ethnic or religious differences within society. Now that becomes tricky if you're trying also to make up for historic inequalities in those differences, but if the general public stops caring as much about those differences then they're sort of solving the solidarity problem in part themselves, at least including everybody in a sort of single nation. The problem you then have then is unless when people become sort of more diversity tolerant, they also are still excised about making up for past inequalities, then you can lose that kind of reparative effect, right? And I think that's gonna be a challenge for people who you know want to make up for the previous misfortunes of ethnic or religious or linguistic communities. If they discover that, well, that moment of reparation never really happens, that we get a moment of national solidarity, but there's never a kind of extra push for that group.
1: For many decades, economics was decried as a dismal science. It seems to me that you, in a way, are trying to make a case for political sciences as a dismal science, which is to say that, in the same way in which we've come to believe that despite economics uh, supposedly being a dismal science, thinking, through the world in certain economic categories can be helpful, it feels to me that you're making a sort of analogous argument about the utility of thinking about these trade-offs in a hard-nosed way in order to achieve what are ultimately, you know, nice, mushy goals. So perhaps leave us with why it is useful to put on those hard-nosed political science goggles. And, you know, how people can apply those in thinking through problems that we haven't touched on in this conversation.
0: I've thought much about this dismal science comment, and I would have mentioned it in the book if I hadn't discovered that the phrase of dismal science has this horrible prehistory of Macaulay and slavery. <laughs> so I took it out. But I do think that political science is sort of economics without contracts, that uh, many of these scarce resources and differences in agreement, but ultimately without anyone to enforce them makes politics even harder as a set of problems for society to deal with than the problems that economists speak about. And so that, you know, that all sounds rather gloomy. But let me offer this, which is that you can think of the book as social science therapy. So I guess a good therapist will often make you aware of your patterns of behavior that you've been ignoring or pretending that you're not doing that are ultimately unhelpful to getting the outcomes that you want, but are hard to face up to. I mean, I think in a way, understanding that you and I are both, Yasha, right, Like speaking personally, we are probably self-interested in lots of things we do and we'll often tell ourselves that we're not or that we're deeply moral people. And we may indeed do deeply moral things, but oftentimes we don't. And we should anticipate that you know, it's not just you and me, it's everybody else. And it's much better to sort of face the world as it is with frail humans who believe different things to one another and can't always be trusted than to think that if only we had the right leader who could you know, exhort us to behave morally, we'd resolve all these problems. I think that would be naive and would ultimately just end up empowering that kind of leader for the worst of all of us. So much better for us to acknowledge that we all have differences, that we can't always be trusted, and to design institutions that don't treat us as angels, to, to paraphrase
1: James Madison,
0: but understand that we're not devils either. We're people, and we need institutions that are made for people.
1: Ben, thank you so much for coming on the
0: podcast. Thank you, Jascha, for having me.
1: Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be liked, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally...